0: Merry Christmas, Real Hope. It's just so great to see you actually in the flesh. I feel like I'm meeting family that I've never seen before. Like, it's a big reunion, and you're the side of the family I've never met. So, I'm just super, super happy to be here, and Merry Christmas to you. We're nine days out. Ah! So, you know, let's just uh, all, let's get our uh, refreshment in Jesus before we go out into those uh, crowded malls and uh, do our last-minute Christmas shopping. So, um, I remember um, when I was just a little girl, I could not wait until I was old enough to join our family apple picking contest. So, my mama and Poppy, that was my grandmother and grandfather, had uh, golden, delicious apple trees in their backyard. And the cousins would get together in the spring, and Poppy would reward the picker of the biggest apple with a t- crisp new $20 bill that he always creased long ways for the dramatic tension. And so finally, I got to the age where I could scramble my little buttski up that tree and grab the biggest apple and... There was a year I actually grabbed the undeniably biggest apple. I knew I had one. I was so excited. So we get down from the tree. We all stand in a line. We have our apple in our hand just like that. And Poppy comes down the line flipping this $20 bill. Who's going to get the winning $20? And he gets in front of me. He sees that big old apple. I'm like, I'm getting it. I'm getting it this year. And he looks me in the eye and he hands a $20 bill to my brother who's standing next to me. And I don't know where hot tears come from, actually, physiologically, but they come from a deep place, because it took them a while to get to behind my eyes, and I felt myself getting red, and my eyes welled up with tears. I remember thinking to myself, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, don't cry, because I knew I was right, and yet I had been wronged. I was right, but I had been wronged. Now, Poppy and I never had a conversation about why he did that. But as I reflect back on that moment, that I remember it was over 50 years ago. But as I reflect back on that moment, it was the first time in my young life I encountered injustice. It was a personal injustice, meaning that I was emotionally hurt by someone who should care for me. And this is common to everyone. We've all experienced these kinds of injustices. You know, you're sitting in class and you're clowning around with your friends and you get sent to detention even though your buddy was the loud one, never happened to you. That's an injustice. That's a personal injustice. It hurts. Or you're, you know, with your group of friends and it's maybe your life group or a women's Bible study and they go out to dinner but you get left off the email chain. For whatever reason, it just hurts. It just feels bad. Or you're in the business world and you're really watching your sales numbers and they keep creeping up and you're making quota and you go second quarter, third quarter, fourth quarter, it's time for promotion and you get passed over. You're right, but then you get wronged and it feels really bad. But that's not all that was going on in the story of the Golden Delicious Apple Contest. Because I think I also experienced what I would call systemic injustice. Because in that scenario, Poppy is the system. He's the one with all the power. And we as kids, especially me as the youngest at that time, have no power. We are powerless to do anything. I have no recourse. Poppy gives a $20 bill to my brother Herb. What am I going to do? Take him to task? I say nothing. I do nothing. I just stand there and take it because I'm powerless. It's a system system that is working with unconscious bias. Maybe it's conscious bias in my family. It's more like conscious bias. But it's working, and I'm powerless to do anything. I have no recourse. I have no agency. I have no choices but to accept it. Systemic injustice is happening today. Personal injustice, we all know that. Systemic injustice happening today, happening here, happening among us My friend April Thomas and her husband Kevin have fathered three strapping scholar-athlete African-American sons. And what she has taught them and what Kevin has taught them is if you are ever walking at dusk and you're finished with practice or you're done with the band, do not walk home at dusk. Call us and we will do everything we can to pick you up. Why? Because they know that even though their boys are far from any kind of troublemaking, statistically, if an African American boy is walking home with his hood up, he is going to garner suspicion in a disproportionate way. Unconscious bias at work. It even happens in the church. You know, gender bias is pretty rampant in the church. And I've experienced this as a woman in ministry for the last 26 years. You know that 60% of most congregations are women, but yet women in pastoral roles make up less than 30% of pastors. And you get the senior pastor, they are 2%. You get to be a single female pastor, and you're like a unicorn. You just don't show up on the radar. So systemic injustice and personal injustice are alive and well. what do we do when we encounter injustice? How, we know how it feels, but what do we do? What action should we take? What attitudes should we have? How should we move into that that event or that experience in a Christ-like way with Jesus' heart in it? What should we do? And this is where the story of Tamar from Genesis chapter 38 is going to teach us so much because Tamar faced injustice like a boss, and we are going to look at her story now. But first we're going to pray. So pray with me. Lord, thank you for my dear family at Real Hope. I haven't even met them and I love them. I look at them and I'm like, ah, they're family to me. And, and Lord, um, just in this season, we want to lift up Jesus and remember that you were the most dangerous baby that ever was born. as you were changing things at the moment of your birth to rectify the wrongs in this world. To cover them with your own precious blood. And to make people new. And we're so grateful for you. And I pray, Holy Spirit, you would fill me now with your spirit. And you would speak your words to each person in this room. Customize this message to every person in this room. You alone are able to do that. I pray you would do that. Every person walked in there with a hurt, a need, an injustice, a challenge. God, would you just meet their need? And would you speak well of Jesus and lift him up in all of our hearts? For we honor you, and we love you, and we pray this in Jesus' name. Everybody said amen, because we're good church people. Amen. All right. Let's roll back to the genealogy of Jesus because we are in the Misfit series. This is week number two. Last week, Ryan preached a great message on Rahab. And uh, you remember her with the scarlet cord down the the wall. Now we're in the second week and it's Tamar and she's in Genesis chapter 38. But she's included in the genealogy of Jesus. She's actually the first one who shows up, the first woman who shows up. Matthew chapter one, verses two and three says, Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram. So if you're pregnant, there's really good baby names in here that you ought to pay attention to, because who doesn't want a little boy named Ram, right? That probably describes most little boys, I'm thinking. That's systemic injustice right there, I just committed it, right? I want you to note Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob because these three patriarchs, these three pillars of Israel, they describe the flow, the beginning and the beginning flow of this covenant family that God becomes partners with. They partner with him in this to make sure his promises get fleshed out all the way to the coming of the Messiah. The covenant is given to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12, you can read it, it's reiterated in Genesis chapter 15, and it's cut or ratified in Genesis chapter 17. So God chooses a family, actually a man who has a family, his name is Abraham, when he chooses him, he's, he's old and he's childless, so Abraham believes these promises God makes, makes to him, and he has no reason to believe it, except he puts his trust and faith in God. So he is this progenitor of our faith. Notice, if you will, the fourth name. It's Judah. This word, this name means praise. And it's a long story of why he got named this, but he is actually a son of Leah, whom Jacob did not love. He loved Rachel, and he did not love Leah. He is the son of an unloved woman, the fourth of Jacob's sons. Judah is the lineage carrier. So it should go Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, even though there's 12 sons. He's the lineage carrier, and we learn about that elsewhere. And then we come to Tamar. Judah figures hugely in the story, but Tamar is in the center place. And for Matthew to mention women in a genealogy or family line was not consistent. It was custom breaking for the day. The Jews said in their writings, a woman's family is not even to be considered as a family. That's how low women were. So to mention Tamar is to break with all custom in the first pages of the New Testament. 400 years of silence and out of the box, we see something that Jesus' presence is going to do to the value of women. Now, Tamar is a Canaanite. These people are forbidden to the Jews, to the Israelites, to intermingle with. So she's not even in the covenant family of God. She's outside that family. Her name means date palm, which is a symbol of wealth, prosperity, and righteousness. If you read Psalm chapter 92, verses 12 through 15, you'll see a comparison between the righteous and and date palms, they were so important as a picture of the righteous that they adorned the outside of Solomon's great temple, and in the carvings on that temple are many, were many date palms because of their significance in a picture of righteousness. But before we actually jump into Genesis 38, if you have your Bible, there's ones on the tables for you. Turn to Genesis 38. Before we get there, I want to talk about two concepts that are really important for us to hold in our minds so that we can unwrap the Tamar story and understand it for ourselves. The first concept is a covenant promise that was made in Genesis chapter 3, verse 15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman. Let me stop there and set the scene for you. This is after Adam and Eve had acted independently of God and chose to sin. God comes along walking to find them. You know, they're in the bushes making simplicity patterns to cover their, you know, nakedness because they've sinned, and God finds them, and he talks about the consequences of their choices. He also gives consequences not only to the man and the woman, but to the serpent, and that's what we're hearing in verse 15. So I will put enmity between you, serpent, and the woman, a barrier between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head, and you shall bruise him on the heel. So what this is saying is somehow through a woman, a seed will come, That will give a death blow to the enemy, but the enemy will not give him a mortal wound. You get the picture? Now, the word seed here is both singular and plural. It's plural in the sense the seed of a woman is a family line. Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah. This line of a family, these descendants, all the way up to Jesus, the coming Messiah, that's what seed is talking about. It's plural. But seed is also singular, in Genesis 22:17, 17, it's a masculine, singular word, which means that there is an individual coming. A man will be born of a woman, meaning a human being, a man being born of a woman, who will actually give the death blow to the enemy. But he himself will be hurt. Is it starting to dawn on you? All the way back in Genesis, at the first time the gospel is being preached, in prophecy. This is important to know because this promise, this covenant promise, forms the basis for all the other promises given to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. This is what they carry in their hearts. This is what every woman in that family thinks. I could be the woman who gives birth to the seed that puts the mortal blow on the head of the enemy. Isn't that a cool thing? Every woman, Eve thought this when her first child was born. I have given forth a man. Right away, they're thinking every firstborn boy could be this one. This is important to understand because this figures into our story. The Old Testament tells the story of God preparing the way for the women's seed. The coming Messiah, a scholar writes, In its pages, we see a few people holding fast to God's promise while most are wandering farther and farther away. This is the story of Tamar. Someone in the story is holding fast to God's promise. I won't tell you who it is. And someone is wandering farther and farther away. We have to know this, this covenant promise, this very real tangible thing that they were holding on to. Some were holding on to it, and this marked their lives. This helps us to understand Tamar's motivation and her intention in what she does. Now, when people believe this promise, this and the other promises, in Genesis 15, 6, they are counted as righteous. So if you're standing there as this Old Testament lineage and you're putting your faith and trust in this, then you are counted as righteous. Now we need to know another concept. The covenant promise, keep it in your mind on your left frontal lobe, it's right there. Okay, put it there. Now on your right frontal lobe, put this next concept. And that is this culture of patriarchy. This is a systemic injustice that is operating at the time of Tamar's life. It's still operating today. As our church's mission pastor, I've traveled all over the world and patriarchy is alive and well. It's alive and well here in the United States. I bet it's here in Houston. I think it arrived two days ago, I'm not sure, but like patriarchy is alive and well. It's a systemic injustice. Here's a definition of patriarchy from the Cambridge English Dictionary. Patriarchy is a society in which the oldest male is the leader of the family or a society controlled by men in which they use their power to their own advantage. That's what my poppy was doing. It's favoring. It's having the power to favor one over another. It's having that kind of power. Now, patriarchy requires the subordination of women and the elevation of sons, male heirs, especially firstborn sons. So that's what you want to have, lots of sons and a firstborn son. Wives, daughters, sisters, mothers are property of the men. This is the milieu of the Old Testament, they're property of the men, just like animals, just like slaves, so were women. Married women become part of the husband's property and part of the husband's family, so they cut ties with their own family, and they're considered part of their husband's family as uh, the husband owns them. To be childless in a patriarchal society is to be cursed. To be barren is a curse, Because your value as a woman comes from the children you bear, especially sons. So if you have no children at all, God has definitely cursed you. That's how it's seen. You are open to social ostracism, whispers behind the back. Nobody wants you. You will be alone and apart for the rest of your life to be childless. Producing sons in a family line is the most valuable thing for a woman to do. Now, I want you to know the Bible describes patriarchy, but it does not prescribe patriarchy. That is such a huge difference. The Bible is not saying, yay, patriarchy, let's do it. It's not saying that. What it's doing is saying, this is the culture that these stories are written in. They happened in this culture. It's so important that we don't confuse those two things. Carolyn Custis James writes this about patriarchy. Patriarchy is not the Bible's message. Please hear that. It's not the Bible's message. Rather, it is the fallen, meaning the sinful, cultural backdrop that sets off in strongest relief the radical nature and purpose of the gospel. So you have in front of you black tablecloths. If you put a white sheet of paper on that black tablecloth, that black tablecloth sets the white sheet in relief In other words, it becomes more visible and understandable because it's compared or contrasted to that white to black, that color. This is what Carolyn Custis James is saying. Patriarchy is the background. When you put the white paper of the gospel on there, the clear, unadulterated love and grace of God in that background, you can see it in all of its clarity because it stands out. So remember, the Bible describes patriarchy, but it doesn't prescribe it. So now jump in with me to Genesis chapter 38. Turn in your Bible there, and let's discover um, all of Tamar's story, because I think she has a lot to teach us about facing injustice and what a powerless person can do in the face of such systemic and personal injury. Now before we get to verse 11, which is where we're going to jump in, let me just set you up for that. Now, Judah, he is the family line guy. He's the carrier, and he has just sold his brother Joseph off to a caravan of people going to Egypt. So basically, Judah's a human trafficker. He sells his brother instead of killing him. So it's actually kind of a generous move on his part. Let's not kill him. Let's just sell him, you know? Let's make a little money. So apparently, he pockets this money, and then he leaves his brothers. He completely departs from his own family, and the Bible says he goes down to Canaan. Down is never a good word in the Old Testament. When you go down places, even today, going down, not good. So he goes down. He takes all of his flocks. They're herdsmen. He takes all of his flocks. He goes down to Canaan, and he separates from his brothers. He makes this really nice friend, Hira the Canaanite, and then he meets a girl who's never named in the story. That's how low women are. They don't have names. And uh, they have sons in quick succession. Er is the first son. And Onan is the second son, and Shelah is the third son. Again, names, come on people, look in your Old Testament. Now, Tamar is an arranged marriage for the firstborn son heir. In fact, the Bible says Judah got his son a wife. Just like you would buy a horse or a cow, he got his son a wife. And so Tamar is married to the firstborn. But the Bible says that he was evil, He did evil things. We're not told what they are, but he dies. And he dies leaving Tamar childless. So now the firstborn is out of the way. And the custom of the day was that Tamar had the right to go to the father in law, Judah, and say, Let me marry your secondborn son and let me conceive a child that I can raise up a child for my dead husband to continue his family line. It's all about the family line. And so Judah agrees. He says to his second born son, Onan, marry Tamar and let's raise up children for your brother who is now deceased. The Bible says Onan repeatedly, the word is whenever, he pleasured himself with Tamar. But only to a certain point. And when he got to that point, he did not impregnate her. He would not do it. And that happened over and over and over again personal injustice. If you go through the story, you don't see the pain and the injustice that this woman is bearing. The Bible says the Lord put him to death for that. He probably didn't want to do it for economic reasons because if he had a son for his brother, then he would get less inheritance, I don't know, maybe it's money but for selfish reasons, he decides to deny Tamar her just right to bear a child for her husband's name. Now there's one son left, so what is Judah going to do? Judah looks at what's happening. I've lost Er, I've lost Onan, and Tamar is the the figure in there that's synonymous with both of them, and maybe he believes in a superstition. Maybe she's cursed. Maybe something weird is going on here, The Bible says that Shelah needs to grow up a little more. He's not a grown man yet. Maybe that's the reason. But what Judah does is he sends Tamar away. And that brings us to verse 11. Judah then said to his daughter-in-law Tamar, live as a widow in your father's household. Remember, when she marries Err, she becomes his family, Judah's family. He's sending his family away to a strange family, even though it's her father's household. Go to your father's household until my son Shelah grows up. For he thought he may die too, just like his brothers. So Tamar went to live in her father's household. Now imagine her going home. It may not have been far away. There are little villages here. They would all have known each other in some way, trading with each other from village to village. I don't know how far she went, but she's in obvious widow dressing, no children in tow, walking back to her father's house. Empty-handed, ostracized. There would have been whispers. There would have been all kinds of talk about Tamar and her strange death of her two those two other guys and and all of this. Rejected, maligned, whispered injustice, suffering injustice. And apparently, she's a faithful widow for years in her father's house. We don't know how long, but the Bible says um, years later, we don't know how many years it was, Judah, meanwhile, his wife dies. The woman that's never named, she dies. And now Judah, after his time of mourning, is feeling kind of frisky. You know, he has not had his wife for a while. And so he goes down to a sheep shearing festival. Now you hear sheep shearing, I hear beer pong in a college dorm. Because that's what this is really like. This is guys getting their stuff on. Okay, this is like Judah's second bachelor party. They're going to go, they're going to have their sheep sheared, and they're going to have all kinds of fun at this thing. It's like he's entering back into life. And when Tamar hears this, when the news traveled to her, she was putting a plan in place. Verse 14, she took off her widow's clothes, She covered herself with a veil to disguise herself and then sat down at the entrance to Anahim, which is on the road to Timnah. For she saw that though Shelah had now grown up, she had not been given to him as his wife. This is the tipping point really for Tamar. She's like, I can turn it over to God, 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 the injustice, and now I have to take action. I'm going to overturn this. I'm going to overturn this, and I believe God is with her. Tamar disguises herself. She really, head to toe, is not recognizable. She sets up a little tent right at the crossroads of Timnah and Anaim. The word Enam means eyes open. So it was a place where Judah could not help but see her. But again, this plan has no guarantees. Maybe he won't do it, but she's counting on the fact that he's frisky and he's probably drunk. And so she's counting on that. And indeed, she's right. She knows her father-in-law very well. She knows his character very well. And he comes into the tent, not recognizing who she is, and asks if he can sleep with her. But the problem is, he doesn't really have any money to pay. Like, he pulls his pockets out of his robe, and he goes, I got nothing. Um, I spent it all, but I really want to sleep with you. What can I do? And I'll send you a young goat later. Yeah, right, and she goes, no, 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 I want a pledge, and that is verse 18 and 19. This is sort of like an IOU, this pledge. Verse 18 says, he said, what pledge should I give to you? Okay, I'll give you a pledge. She asked for your seal and its cord and the staff in your hand, she answered. So he gave them to her and slept with her, and she became pregnant by him. After she left, as soon as it was over, she left. She took off her veil. All the prostitute clothes come off and put on her widow's clothes again. She is not a prostitute. That's how, for generations, Tamar has been preached. She's a woman on a mission to overturn injustice, and God is with her. Now, at this point, we need the slide that is Jimmy Fallon dressed in a uh, blonde wig and a little, um, you know, dress going, ew, 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 because who in our culture, sleeping with your father-in-law, but She's not a baby-crazed widow. That is not who she is. According to the custom of the day, and this is verified in the Hittite and Assyrian writings, it was possible if there were no brothers left or the brothers didn't want to fulfill the duty to their sister-in-law that the father-in-law could and should step in and raise up a child for his dead son, his firstborn son. So this is not outside of custom. It's ew, but it's not outside of custom. All right? All right. So what does Judah do in that pledge? Judah gives her basically his ID and a major credit card. (laughs) Just hands it over to a complete stranger. So the staff would have been his ID. This was a carved wooden walking stick that was the sign of his patriarchy over his family. Possibly the names Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob have been carved into the staff, the head of the staff. It's kind of like a family tree. It's an heirloom. It's a symbol of his family leverage and, and weight. And then the seal would have been the way he um, signs documents. It would have been this little cylinder thing hanging by a cord around his neck, and he would impress it on um, you know clay, tablets, and things like that when he wanted to buy sheep or he wanted to transact business or sign a document. This is how he would sign his name. He's giving away the story. He thinks so little of his family lineage that he gives it all away to a prostitute. Now, after the fact, he goes and tries to find this person. He sends his friend Hira to go find her with a young goat so he can pay her and get his stuff back. They can't find her. Why? Because she's not a prostitute. She came for a one-night-only thing, and now she's back gone. They said, no prostitute here. So what does Judah do? He goes... I just don't want to be a laughing stock and try to go traipsing all over finding this prostitute, so let her keep my stuff. Would you just let somebody keep your ID and your major credit card? Would you at least? Remember when I said some people are holding on to the promise and some people are wandering farther and farther away. Oh, I hope you see that in the story. That there is a powerless woman subject to such injustice, both personal and systemic, who is holding on to a promise. And the fourth person in this family line to carry on to Jesus wanders farther and farther away from it. I think Tamar is focused in her heart on Genesis 3.15. I think she's thinking I want this child because I might be the woman who gives birth to the seed who becomes the deliverer of all. I believe that was her motivation. And we'll see it borne out in a minute. Verse 24 about three months later, Judah was told, Your daughter in law, Tamar, is guilty of prostitution. And as a result, she is now pregnant. And what does Judah say? Judah says, bring her out and have her burned. That's a little over the top, Judah. It's a little over the top. Tamar still belongs to his family. Know that. She still is his. She belongs to that family. He's like, burn, obliterate her. Turn her to ash. Get rid of her. The Bible says in beautiful language of Hebrew, as she's coming out her father's door to be delivered to be burned, a FedEx or Amazon box is being delivered to Judah at his house with a little note inside that says, please look over these items, examine them carefully, and identify whose they might be because that's the father of my child. Imagine Judah opening that box and seeing his staff and his seal and that cord. And in a striking moment that most scholars say is the key to understanding this story, Judah says in verse 26, Judah recognized his seal, his cord, and his staff and said, she is right or righteous, I am not. Maybe your Bible says she is more righteous than I It basically is righteousness on two levels. She is right. I wronged her. I should have given her my son Shalah. I wronged her. But she is also righteous. She's believing in a promise that God prophesied of a deliverer, and she's put her faith and trust in him. She is righteous. It was credited to her as righteousness, I believe. And Tamar's courage shines the light of truth on Judah. It's like she is a mirror, and he sees himself for the very first time. And this is the moment that the prodigal patriarch comes to his knees. Judah's admission is the understanding of Tamar's story. Canaanite, childless Tamar has her eye on God's covenant promise to Judah's family, her family. Verse 11, the story ends with a beautiful twist. I mean, verse 27, excuse me. It says, when the time came for her to give birth, there were twin boys in her womb, Perez and Zerah. It's a fitting end, twin sons for faithful, courageous Tamar. Woohoo! she finally has her boys. But it's also a grace to Judah who actually receives sons that kind of not replace his two sons that died, but can stand in that place. It's a beautiful grace of God to give him these beautiful Boys. And as a twist of the knife into the heart of patriarchy, Zerah puts his hand out of Tamar first as the firstborn, but he suddenly draws it back and Perez comes bursting through. That's his name, breakthrough. I'm going to burst through. And he's the one that becomes the firstborn and he is the one that we read in Matthew 1 that goes, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob, Judah, Perez, son of Tamar. Tamar is not a vixen. She is praised as a righteous woman, so much so that in Ruth chapter 4, verse 17, she is sung by the women in the village as a role model for Ruth. Oh, that you would be like Tamar, who bore Perez to Judah. King David and his son Absalom each name a daughter after Tamar. That would be a name that you should consider. She's the righteous one. Tamar, the righteous, courageous woman, is just a foreshadowing of Jesus. And this has been our theme throughout the series. It will continue to be so because these women, these men and women in the Bible are foreshadowings of that one, that righteous one, the deliverer. And she foreshadows Jesus in three ways that I can see in this story. Tamar acts righteously. She does the right thing. She is right, Judah said, and I am wrong. But Jesus is the righteousness of God. He actually is God's righteousness in human flesh, and he not only is the righteousness, he gives us his righteousness when we trust him as our personal savior. When we put our faith in Christ, he takes our sin and he gives us his own righteousness. Jesus is the righteousness of God. Tamar risked her life for her family Jesus gave his life for the world, for people who are outside the family, never were a part of the family, didn't even believe anything. Jesus gave his life for everyone, for the whole world, for you, for me, for all the people that we know, for people we don't know. Those present, those past, all the people in the future, Jesus once for all gave his life for the world. And thirdly, Tamar's actions actually changed Judah. We know as you read the end of the story of Genesis that Judah, who once sold his brother Joseph to be a slave in Egypt, stands up for his brother Benjamin just chapters later and says to Joseph, who's disguised kind of as one of Pharaoh's uh, prime ministers, says to him, please take me as a slave instead of my brother Benjamin. He's a changed man because of Tamar, because of the righteous one because of a powerless woman facing injustice who wanted to make things right. And here's what I think Tamar shows us about facing injustice. And you know what? You're sitting here. Some of you are facing injustice. Some of you have been personally wounded. Some of you are bearing that. And that is one way to handle injustice. Never turn away from it. Tamar doesn't ever turn away. I believe she does two things. She turns it over to God. So when we're facing injustice, whether personal or systemic, we don't turn away, we turn it over to God. And there are times when God calls us to overturn it in Jesus' name. Never turn away from injustice. Turn it over to God, or sometimes God will call you to overturn it in his name. Oh, that we would be people, be a church, real hope, bent tree, all of us, that we would not turn away our face from what we see is wrong, but we would turn that over to God and say, God, are you calling me to step in and be your instrument in overturning that injustice? Gosh, what, what cool things can happen in this community and among us as we step in to that kind of beautiful righteousness. Merry Christmas, new hope. Uh, Real hope. Merry Christmas, real hope. And I pray that you and I can walk in the righteousness and the courage of dear Tamar. Let me pray. Father, thank you so much for this wonderful woman of God. Thank you that we can learn so much from her life. And Father, thank you for using us, simple people, powerless people, by your power to overturn systems of injustice and do what is right in your eyes. Oh, God, just make us courageous and willing to step into those places, we pray. And I pray for my uh, friends and brothers and sisters here at Real Hope. Would you bless them in this season, God, and use them in powerful ways they cannot even imagine to be your righteous ones. We love you and we thank you in Jesus' name. Amen.